Well, good morning, church. As we continue in our series through the Gospel of Luke, please turn with me to Luke chapter 1. And uh, as the fifth and sixth grade girls were sharing this morning, I was so appreciative of uh, both Linda's and their ministry here. But it also reminded me that, uh, you know, some stories are best the first time you hear them. Once you hear it, you got it, but then you hear it again, it kind of loses its luster that second time. Um, But then there are other stories. The more you hear them, the more you begin to understand about them. Uh, The more you hear them, the more you begin to see. Uh, Those are the best kind of stories. Uh, Friends, the story that Luke tells in his orderly account uh, is one of those kinds of stories. The further you look into it, the better you find it to be. Uh, so while you're thinking about Luke chapter 1 and turning there in your copy of the Bible, uh, let me take you back to another timeless story. Uh, this time, join me on Christmas Eve, 1945, in Bedford Falls. Uh, George Bailey is standing on the edge of a bridge, and he is suicidal. George's Uncle Billy had gone to deposit $8,000, which would be a few hundred thousand dollars probably in today's money, for his building and loan business that morning, but he mistakenly places it in the envelope of the evil Mr. Potter's newspaper. Things then go from bad to worse for George Bailey, and right before he stands on this bridge in a blizzard about to jump off, uh, he had sat at a bar nearby and prayed a very desperate prayer. You remember the prayer. Dear Father in heaven, I'm not a praying man, but if you're up there and you can hear me, show me the way. Show me the way. I wonder if anybody this morning can relate to George Bailey. Have you ever had a time in your life of intense desperation? A time in your life of intense discouragement? A time in your life of an intense loss of hope? A time when it feels like all your prayers have simply been hitting the ceiling and the only thing you can hear in all your pain is silence from God. And you begin to pray, God, show me the way. Show me the way. The Bible describes times like these often. It describes them as times of deep darkness. This was precisely the situation for the nation of Israel 2,000 years ago. The nation of Israel was described as a people walking in great darkness. They had not heard God speak through any prophet for about 400 years. In fact, Isaiah the prophet would describe them this way in chapter 9, the people who walked in darkness. At this point, there was no promised Messiah. There was no glorious temple as predicted by the prophet Ezekiel. There was no king from David's line on the throne in Judah. All there was is darkness. All there was is Rome who ruled with an iron fist and in total control of the world. Perhaps many Israelites believed that God had forgotten his people. Perhaps many Israelites had gotten on with their lives. Perhaps many Israelites chose to hear the voices of career or family or work or politics because they spoke much louder than anything that God had to say. After all, sometimes it makes more sense to base your life on what you can see and what you can actually hear and what you can taste and what you can touch than on living and walking by faith. Uh, The symbol of darkness in the Bible is a symbol of evil. It's a symbol of ignorance. It's a symbol of violence. It's a symbol of the abuse of power. Darkness refers to a kind of bottomless grief. The people walked in darkness. 
But friends, the good news of Christmas, the good news that we see in our passage for today, the good news of Isaiah chapter 9 is that that darkness will be interrupted, that that darkness uh, will be shattered by an amazing light. Isaiah says, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. We don't know exactly the date of Jesus' birthday, but it's no accident that we choose to celebrate it on December 25th every year. That's because we who live in the Northern Hemisphere remember that this is the absolute darkest time of the year. And the symbolism there is important. It's because of that date that we remember that it's into the deepest darkness that the light is born. This is when the days begin to grow longer and longer. This darkness is about to be interrupted by light. The silence is about to be interrupted by the songs of Christmas. That's our passage in, a, in Luke chapter 1, verses 39 to 80 today. Uh, the, the title of my message is simply The Blessing of Christmas. And you'll notice four different sections in our passage today. You're going to see the visit, the song, the name, and the blessing. And maybe you're here today and you're longing for that blessing because you feel like you've been walking through a time of darkness. Or perhaps maybe you're here today and things are going quite well. Maybe 2023 was a great year for you. And we're happy for you. We rejoice with you. But just listen to these songs this morning because there may come a time where you might need them. Or perhaps you're here today and you feel like that's where you're at right now. It's a time of deep darkness for you. Uh, You'll be glad to know that the Bible speaks to such times, and you'll be glad to know that this passage is just for you. And so that's where our text will head us today, and why don't we pray and ask for the Lord's help. Would you pray with me? Oh God, as you stoop down in history on Christmas, we ask that you would again stoop down to us today and speak through your word. May we now, your people, receive these words in our minds and with our hearts, that we might receive your blessing afresh. For we ask it in Jesus' name, and all your people said, amen. Movement number one, the visit. Theologians call this first section the visitation. Uh, and, And here's just a simple timeline of the events of the infancy narratives of Luke's gospel so far. You may recall that last time we left off with two women, two pregnant women, Zechariah's wife Elizabeth and Mary. Two women who were touched by an angel, one a senior citizen and the other a teenager. Uh, next, you'll see in our timeline that we're going to cover the next four events in this part of the gospel story. And you'll recall last time that the angel had told Mary that her relative Elizabeth was pregnant too. And upon hearing that news, Mary, taking the hint, goes to pay her relative Elizabeth a visit. And that's where we pick up the story. Look with me at verse 39. In those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah. And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. Mary's journey as a young teenage girl being pregnant would not be an easy one. I suspect this is why she went to go visit Elizabeth. Mary had heard that her relative Elizabeth's miraculous pregnancy had had happened. And perhaps she thought, if anybody's going to understand, it has to be Elizabeth. And so she goes to see her. And this is such an amazing scene in the Bible against the backdrop of darkness, against the backdrop of of disgrace and shame. There's this moment of 
true joy that comes bursting forth for these two mothers to be. Look with me at verse 41. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. This is such a precious moment here, isn't it? A special moment between these two women to share and to embrace one another and to discuss all that God has been doing for both of them. And what a relief this must have been for Mary. She didn't have to explain herself. She didn't have to worry anymore about being misunderstood in her pregnancy. All she had to do was say hello, and Elizabeth knew. And evidently, even Elizabeth's developing baby knew as the baby leapt within her. This is just the affirmation and encouragement that Mary needed. So just picture the scene for a second with me. Here we have these two pregnant moms with these two children in their wombs. One, the greatest prophet of the old covenant, and the other, the very Lord of the new covenant. Both sons now joined together for the first time, still in utero, but for the first time, they are under the same roof, very close together. They can almost touch. You know when you have an electrical connection and, and you have two wires like maybe you're connecting the terminals on your car battery or something like that, and the closer the wires get to the terminal, you begin to see the, the electrical pulse arc across the one wire to the other wire, and you start to see these little, these little blue sparks that happen there. John, electrician, are we good here? Okay, so you know what I'm talking about? That's a little bit like the scene here I see between Elizabeth and Mary. The closer they get together, it's like... They begin to spark... Uh, these two moms cl come close together and there's this spontaneous outburst of exuberant joy. And the two boys have their first encounter. The results are explosive. Early church theologian Maximus of Turin comments on this incredible moment by saying this, not yet born, if you go to the next slide if you would, he says, not yet born, already John prophesies and while still in the enclosure of his mother's womb, he confesses the coming of Christ with movements of joy. As an aside, the Bible does speak of life even while in the womb as having great value and purpose. From its earliest stages, this is what we believe called the doctrine of the sanctity of human life, namely that life in the womb is valuable and deserving of protection. And so even the baby, John the Baptist, in the womb is full of joy and his, his mother feels him move and she shares the joy of her son. So Elizabeth is full of joy and Mary's full of joy and even John is full of joy. And why? Why are they all so full of joy? Well, friends, the answer is the same reason why you and I can feel joy too. They are full of joy because of the coming of Christ. This is what gives them great joy. The dark days are coming to an end. The light is beginning to dawn. Look back with me at Elizabeth's greeting. Notice first here, for you biblical theologians, we have a pattern of the older blessing the younger. Notice secondarily, if you're Roman Catholic, what you see here is she begins to sing part of the rosary. We've already seen in the passage from last Sunday, the words Ave Maria, 
which simply translate as Hail Mary, which just simply means Hello Mary. But then here we see from Elizabeth these words, blessed are you among women, blessed is the fruit of your womb. And so if you grew up uh, Roman Catholic, you recognize this as part of the rosary. But I don't want you to misunderstand these words of blessing here. Elizabeth was not worshiping Mary. She was simply blessing Mary for her faith. And this blessing rests not just upon Mary, but all of those who have faith. So if you're longing for the blessing this morning, if you're walking in darkness this morning, it begins with this moment right here, this moment of faith. This is how you make the electrical connection to God, the source of all power, through faith alone. In fact, the most important thing that Elizabeth says here was not about Mary, it's about Jesus. Look at what Elizabeth says here, even in the womb, she calls this baby, my Lord, A baby? My Lord? See, this child is the Old Testament fulfillment of Psalm 110. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand and I will make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Jesus, even in the womb, is the Lord of all. And Elizabeth says, who am I that you and my Lord should visit me like like this? It's astonishing. And we ought to be astonished as well. Friends, this is the beginning of the most extraordinary event in the Bible when God became man, the incarnation. As the hymn writer says, this, this is Christ the King whom shepherds guard and angels sing. Haste, haste to bring him laud the babe, the son of Mary. This is big news. You know, when the Allies landed at Normandy on D-Day, that was pretty big news. When we, when we put a guy on the moon for the very first time, that was big news. That is nothing compared to the news of God coming down to this earth, coming to seek and to save the lost. It's absolutely magnificent for them, and it's magnificent for us as well. Amen? Amen. Only we have more reason to leap for joy in our day, don't we? They are simply rejoicing at his conception. But we not only rejoice in his conception, We also rejoice in his perfect life, and we rejoice in his crucifixion, and we rejoice in his resurrection, and we rejoice in his ascension to the Father's right hand, and we rejoice in his coming consummation when he returns again to set up his kingdom forever. Friends, if you're going through a dark time, this is where you begin to find the blessing of Christmas by placing your faith in the person of Christ, and he gives you a joy unspeakable, full of glory. So in this first section, the visitation, we begin to see the fulfillment of God's promises and the role of faith in receiving those blessings. And this baby brings much blessing to them and to us. And we receive that blessing by faith and we leap with joy. So we've seen the visit. And next in our text, we're gonna see the song of Mary. We've seen the visit and now we'll see the song. Uh, For you technical people, this is the first of four different nativity hymns at the beginning of Luke's Gospel. If you fast forward a couple slides for me, if you would. The four different hymns in Luke's gospel are as follows on the screen. We have Mary's Magnificat. We have Zechariah's Benedictus. Then we have the angels Gloria and Excelsis Deo. And then finally, we have Simeon's Nunc Dimittis. Those are kind of strange words, maybe to your ears, a little unusual. They're all taken from the Latin translation of the beginning of those four hymns. And so let's say those four hymns together, shall we? The Magnificat, the Benedictus, the Gloria and Excelsis Deo, and the Nunc Dimittis. Good job. 
Now, you might wonder, why does Luke include these songs? And the answer is, number one, it's a way of forcing us, the reader, to slow down, to take in all that has happened here. Like in an opera, the action stops so that the situation can be savored more deeply. That's what's going on here. It causes us to pause. Number two, I have this T-shirt that I like to wear sometimes that simply says, the gospel is so good, it has to be sung. The gospel deserves to be a song of praise and worship to our God. And they, know, they knew about this back in the first century, and they began to incorporate hymns of worship and song into their liturgy. The Bible's full of songs, the song of Moses, the song of Deborah, the song of Hannah. One commentator said that these four songs of Luke 1 and 2 are songs of transition. They are both simultaneously the last of all of the Hebrew psalms and the first ever Christmas carols. And so this first song is Mary's song. It's called the Magnificat. And I want to offer a special challenge here for the, for the mothers in the room. My challenge is for you to memorize the Magnificat. Now, there's nothing wrong with you men memorizing this either. It will be a blessing to you. But I do think it's a particular blessing to the mothers in the room and the souls of women. So, ladies, here's my challenge. Between now and next Sunday... Memorize the Magnificat. If you do that, you will never regret it, and the words of this song of Mary will come to your mind over and over again, and it will be a great blessing to you. Now allow me just to read this song to you. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, now, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He's filled the hungry with good things and the rich he sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. Wow. A few observations about this incredible song. First of all, did you notice Mary knows her Bible? This psalm of praise sounds like something David wrote. It has echoes of the song of Hannah. If you're a careful Bible scholar, you'd notice that he also has, she also has quotations or allusions from Genesis, Deuteronomy, 1 and 2 Samuel, Job, Psalms, Isaiah, Ezekiel, Micah, Habakkuk, and Zephaniah. Mary knows the scriptures. And they come pouring out of her with this song of praise. Uh, like it was said of John Bunyan, if you prick him, he bleeds Bibline. She just bleeds the Bible when she bursts into song. Secondarily, notice the opening line here. She begins by saying, my soul magnifies the Lord. Now to magnify means to enlarge something. As a magnifying glass enlarges whatever's being looked at. But what exactly are we enlarging here? Well, it can't be God. 
God doesn't need to be enlarged. What needs to be enlarged is my understanding of God. It's my vision of God. Because like all of us, our understanding of God is often too small, especially in those times of darkness. And so God needs to be magnified. And, and we need to remember how majestic he is. As Psalm 34 says, magnify the Lord with me. Come, let us exalt his name forever. Notice also she praises God for many of his attributes. Did you catch them? For his might and for his holiness and for his mercy and for his strength. There is great theology about the person of God here in the Magnificat. So many of the great hymns of the faith contain such rich theology and this is no exception. This week I was just listening to the words of O Little Town of Bethlehem. How still we see thee lie. Above thy deep and dreamless sleep, the silent stars go by. Yet in thy dark streets shineth the everlasting light. The hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee tonight. For Christ is born of Mary, and gathered all above, while mortals sleep, the angels keep their watch of wondering love. O morning stars together proclaim thy holy birth, and praises sing to God the King, and peace to men on earth. There's such rich and profound theology in a good song, and the Magnificat is no exception. It magnifies our vision of God. It, it expands our understanding of who God is. Finally, notice in the Magnificat, there are two different sections to this psalm. I don't want you to miss them. The first section in the first half, we see that God blesses the humble, and the second section in the second half is that God humbles the proud. This is what our God has always done in the past, whether it's Pharaoh or Nebuchadnezzar or Goliath or the Philistines. God is opposed to the proud but gives grace to the humble. God will overthrow every proud nation. He will humble every proud heart. This includes me and anyone who boasts in anything but the Lord, who boasts in their intellect or their position or their wealth. We must be reminded of the words of Jeremiah the prophet, let not the rich man boast in his riches or the wise man boast in his wisdom or the strong man boast in his strength, but let him who boasts boast in this, that he knows and understands me, the Lord our God. The great preacher Martin Lloyd-Jones said about the Magnificat, quote, everything that man boasts in is utterly demolished by this son of God, unquote. The son of God is not born here into an aristocratic family, but a poor one. He identifies with the least of these, even in his birth. Isn't it something that when it came time for Christmas, that God bypassed all of the most important people in the world at this time? If you were part of the marketing team, if you were part of the PR committee that was deciding how are we going to roll out the Son of God coming into this world, is this how you would do it? God comes to the humble. He doesn't come to the philosophers of this age or to the, to the Caesar or, or to the, the most important people in Rome. No, he, he comes to Mary, the perfect example of a humble servant. She's poor, she's young, she's a peasant girl from Nowheresville, Nazareth. She's a nobody, and she knows she's a nobody. And she also knows she's a sinner who needs a savior. And she rejoices in God, her savior. And God in his grace sees her in her lowly condition and blesses her with these good gifts. 
Friends, the blessing of God comes upon those who will humble themselves in the sight of the Lord, and he will lift you up. I was always told when I was growing up, actions speak louder than words. Did anybody's mom ever tell you actions speak louder than words? Yeah, that's good advice. If that's true, and it is, what do we learn about God through his actions here in this text? I submit to you what we learn about God here is that we have a God who's humble. We serve a God who's, who's humble, who condescends, who came not to be served but to serve. And in our world, surrounded by people who are so full of themselves, whether it's politicians or professional athletes or Hollywood elites strutting around, showing off their fame and their power and their prestige, this is really something to behold. A God who's humble? If the humility of God is such a central theme in the Bible and such a major characteristic of our God, why is this theme not given more attention? One of my professors, Dr. Glenn Kreider at DTS, said the reason is this, quote, I suspect that the humility of God is difficult for us to accept because of the implications that such a doctrine would have on our lives. In other words, if I believe that God is humble, the obvious implication for me there is I ought to be humble too. If I serve a God who is humble and who gives up his rights, the obvious implication is that I ought to give up my rights. If we have a God who's humble, who looks first to the interests of others, the obvious implication there is I ought to also look first to the interests of others. We have a God who's humble, and we ought to follow in his steps. Friends, what we're going to see throughout this series on the Gospel of Luke is that we have a Messiah who will turn this world totally upside down. Luke's gospel will share this theme with us repeatedly over the course of this entire series, whether it's the, the story of the rich man and Lazarus at Luke 16, or the story of the Pharisee and the tax collector in Luke 18. Over and over and over again, Luke will continue to tell us that God is opposed to the proud but gives grace to the humble. And so this is the song of Mary. This is the Magnificat as she rejoices in the spiritual blessings that she, a humble servant, is given by God. But friends, those same spiritual blessings are available to all believers who will humble themselves under the feet of Christ. So this is good news, and we rejoice with her. The text simply concludes with verse 56, saying, Mary remained with her about three months and then returned to her home. And so that's the song. We've seen the visit and we've seen the song, and ladies, don't forget your homework. But that leads us to movement three, the name. The visit and the song are followed by the name. Fast forward with me a little bit, we're not sure how long, maybe a few months, to the account of the birth of the great John the Baptist. Verse 57 picks up that story. Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. And her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. And on the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child. And they would have called him Zechariah after his father, but his mother answered, No, he shall be called John. And they said to her, None of your relatives is called by that name. So John is born. And in fulfillment of the words of Gabriel, the angel's prophecy, many rejoice at his birth, as it says in chapter 1, verse 14. 
And then eight days later, according to the Torah of Moses, the baby is brought for his circumcision. This is a special day in the covenant community. The community would be present there, and that would be when the child be given his name. And this happens sometimes in our day, doesn't it? A baby is given a certain name. Maybe it's an unusual name by their parents. But then other people have the audacity to offer their opinion about what the name should be. Or other people make snide remarks or gossip about what name the parents have chosen for this baby. That's, friends, don't do that. <laughs> just don't do, just stop it. That's rude. It's offensive. But nonetheless, that's nothing new. They used to do this back then. And here they are pushing their opinion. They're persisting, aren't they? Verse 62 continues the story. The crowd gathered, it says, and they made signs to his father, inquiring what he wanted him to be called. And he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, his name is John. And they all wondered. So can you just picture this scene for a moment? Here they turn their attention from Elizabeth over to Zechariah, and he grabs a piece of papyrus, and he begins to slowly write down the letters of this boy's name, and then he holds up the papyrus so that everybody can see and Zechariah's like, are we clear here? The reason this name is so important is because Zechariah is not the one who's doing the naming. His name was given to him by God. And so this is a step of obedience for Zechariah. And every name in the Christmas story is very significant. Names in the Bible are very significant. Names today are significant. Do you know what your name means? My name is David which simply means beloved. That's why everybody loves me. <laughs> Amen, Dave? What does your name mean? Do you know? Turn to your neighbor and tell him what your name means, if you know. Just tell him. Just go ahead. What does your name mean? Very interesting, isn't it? Now let me share with you the significance of the names in the Christmas story. Take a look on the screen. Zechariah's name means God remembers. Elizabeth's name means God is faithful. John's name means God is gracious. And of course, Jesus' name means God saves. What an incredible blessing on this little baby boy. And do you see what Luke, the gospel writer, is doing for us right here in chapter 1? Luke is beginning to tell us the entire gospel narrative just using names. Luke is communicating to us that this gospel story is the story about how God remembers his promises and how God is faithful to keep his promises for his people and how God is gracious and how God saves. This is the good news of Christmas, simply told through these names. So as soon as Zechariah writes down the name of John, that God is gracious, something amazing happens. Look at verse 64. And immediately, his mouth was opened, and his tongue loosed, and he spoke, blessing God. And fear came on all the neighbors, and all these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea. And all who heard them laid them up in their hearts, saying, what then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. So can you just imagine the awe and imagine the wonder here? 
As the crowd gathers, considers the significance of this person, John, whose name means God is gracious, and all God would do through him and how God would be with him, and we will read later that God is with him in the waters of baptism, and God will be with him as he rebukes the religious leaders, and God will be with him as he stands up to the most powerful people in the land, and God will even be with him in his death. And so here these people are just in awe and wondering about who this John is and what he will do. And they had also, not to skip over this, they had also just witnessed a miracle. You'll recall that Zechariah was disciplined by God because of his unbelief and rendered unable to speak. And right here, symbolically, just as God breaks the silence after 400 years, Zechariah is about to break his silence and he's able to speak again. And so with his act of obedience, writing down the name John, doing exactly what God has told him to do, God is pleased with his obedience and gives him again his ability to speak and break the silence. And when he breaks the silence, he does it by blessing God with this amazing song, the Benedictus. And this is the fourth movement of our passage today, the blessing. The word Benedictus just simply means the blessing. Now, I know this is the fourth movement today, and we're covering so much scripture, but if you're with me, can you just say amen? amen? Okay. I don't want you to miss this. Again, let me just read this amazing song to you. And his father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear, in holiness and righteousness before him all of our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. Wow. What an incredible blessing. Notice again, there are two different parts to this song. In part one, Zechariah blesses God. And then in part two, as every son longs for, he blesses his son. Notice a few key terms here. First of all, notice that term in verse 68, visited. Please circle that in your copy of the Bible. That is what Christmas is. God has visited his people. In other words, God is entering into the story of humanity from the outside, and without that visit, without his intervention, we had no hope, and we walked in great darkness. Christmas is not just about a birth. It's about a visitation. This is the story of Christmas, namely that salvation is not a result of human invention. Rather, it is a result of divine intervention. This is the visitation. 
Tim Keller says it well, quote, the birth of the Son of God into the world is a gospel. It is good news. It is an announcement. You don't save yourself. God has come to save you. This is the visitation. Secondly, notice that term, the horn. This is an image from the Old Testament. We see this in Psalm 148, verse 14. This is an image often used of the Messiah. The horn of an animal was a symbol of the animal's power and a symbol of the animal's great strength. And the great power and the great strength of God is seen ultimately in his sending of his Messiah for us, the horn. The horn was also used by the prophets as a container. And they would take, they would take a horn and, and they would fill this horn with, with oil. And upon God's anointed messengers, they would, they would take their horn and they would present that new leader, that new messenger of God with the oil by pouring it over their heads as the anointed one. And this is what the word Messiah means. It's the anointed one. The Christ means the one who is anointed by God. This is who we have here in Luke chapter 1. We have the horn, the one that was promised from long ago. This was promised to David that one day one of his sons would be the Messiah, the anointed king, and would reign forever. The Messiah would come, notice he says, and to bring liberation and to bring redemption and to bring forgiveness of sins and to bring salvation. And I want you to notice one more term in this text that you can't overlook. Why does God do all of this? Why does God send the horn? Why does God visit us? The answer is because God has tender mercy for his people. That is the key term in the entire Benedictus, tender mercy. It's a compound word in the original made up of two Greek words, elias, which means mercy, and splonkna, which means a very deep feeling down deep inside of your gut. Translators choose tender mercy here in the ESV. Friends, this is how God feels about people like you and me. If you want to understand the blessing of God, if you are walking in darkness, you must first look to the tender mercy of God as your light. Brennan Manning says God has relentless tenderness toward his people. I love what Manning used to say. He said, quote, don't ever be so foolish as to compare God's love with your love. When we speak of God's love, we're speaking of the infinite, transcendent creator of all things who is love himself and whose love goes beyond our comprehension. Manning goes on to say, don't ever be so silly as to compare your thin, wavering, capricious, moody, depending upon smooth circumstances, love with God's love. For he is God, and his love and his grace and his compassion and his tender mercy are greater than you can ever imagine. This is our God who gives us his tender mercy. And like Zechariah, we praise him for his tender mercy today. Finally, notice the imagery at the end of that song. Zechariah uses the words darkness and death. The image here is being lost in the dark wilderness somewhere, a place of no safety, a place of no security, in the pitch blackness of night with nothing but vicious animals all around or enemies who are hunting you. This is the shadow of death. This is the darkness that the people find themselves in. This is the darkness that we find ourselves in. We are in a world lost in utter darkness with enemies all around. We are all George Bailey standing on the side of the bridge in darkness, in desperation, saying, God, show me the way. 
show me the way. And the good news of Christmas is that our God has come to show us the way. And because of his tender mercy, he has come to give us light. We need light. And Christmas teaches us that God has given us his light. 1 John 1, 9 and 10 says, The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. I love Christmas lights this time of year. When our girls were younger, we used to drive around at night and get some hot cocoa and coffee for mom and dad and drive around to see the different light displays in the different neighborhoods. And it was always a great joy to watch them flicker and glow and in the nighttime be surrounded by what looked like millions of stars with these beautiful light displays. And they are beautiful, but friends, I want you to see those lights as you look around your neighborhoods this year, not just as decorative. They are symbolic. Because Christians have recognized over the centuries that the emphasis on light in the darkness comes from the deep Christian belief that this world's hope has come to bring us all light even in the darkness. We see him who is the light. And what good news it is to see him when we're sitting in darkness in the shadow of death. The blessing from Zechariah says we will be given light and guidance so that our feet can find the way out, the way towards peace. And so this is the blessing given to John the Baptist, a blessing available to all of those who receive the message of John the Baptist and place our faith in Christ. So today, like George Bailey, if you feel like you've lost your way, if you don't know what to do and you don't know where to turn, my encouragement is if your back is against the wall, this is where you turn in life for purpose and for hope again. You turn to this one who is the light. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light, Isaiah says. And Isaiah chapter nine goes on to describe who exactly this light would be. Isaiah continues in chapter nine by saying this, for to us, a child is born and to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. He's the light. This child is where we find the light. This child is where we find the blessing of Christmas. This child is where we find the blessing from God in our times of deep darkness. He is the light of the world. And friends, he's not just any light. Tim Keller says he is the light when all of our other lights go out. And sometimes they do, don't they? But there is one who is always enduring and always persevering and always with us. And his light is still shining brightly in our hearts and I suspect in many of your hearts today. What a blessing. What an amazing mission God has given to this young boy, John, at just eight days old to proclaim this good news. And so this is the Benedictus. Chapter one concludes with just simply saying this in verse 80. And the child grew and became strong in spirit, and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. And so we've learned today that the blessing of God comes through these four different sections of Luke chapter one. In the visit, we learn that the blessing of Christmas comes when we exercise faith and rejoice with Mary and Elizabeth at the coming of Christ and our hearts leap for joy. In the song, we learn that the blessing of Christmas comes not upon the proud, but upon the humble. And in the name, 
We learn that the blessing of Christmas comes because God is gracious to his people. And finally, in the Benedictus, we learn that the blessing of Christmas comes when we remember the light that comes because of the tender mercy of God. And so if you're walking in despair today, just simply look around. And don't just stop at the decorations and the presents this Christmas. Remember, these songs that Luke chapter 1 has written down for us, recall what these women were singing about and these men were singing about, and then you'll begin to understand how to move from darkness to light. This is the blessing of Christmas. I'm going to invite the worship team to come for one final song. And as they do, I'll make one final point. You know, the film It's a Wonderful Life teaches us that God is sovereign, that each life is precious, and each person has a divine purpose. In the grand story that we all play that's still unfolding, Elizabeth found her place and Mary found her place, and you and I need to find our place in the story as well. George found his place in the story, and he had made an impact far beyond what he had even realized. At the end of the movie, Bailey and his family are reunited again, and he's beaming with joy. And you know the scene as he runs through the streets of Bedford Falls, wishing everybody a Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas, Bedford Falls. Merry Christmas, Mr. Potter. Merry Christmas, you old building and loan. George Bailey is filled with gratitude, remembering what he's had all along, his friends and his family, all of God's good gifts in his life. And on top of it all, we know that the actor behind George Bailey had a deep faith in the Lord Jesus Christ as well. And he remembered the good news of Christmas. This is why we celebrate. This is why we remember what God has done. To remember that we've all received the blessing of Christmas. Can we pray together? Our Father, we bow our heads and we close our eyes just to say thank you. To thank you for your tender mercy. God, we bow our heads just to magnify your name together. We are so grateful for your visitation and for coming with the forgiveness of sins and the compassion that you have in your heart towards those who will humble themselves in your sight. And so God, help us to remember these gifts of Christmas and the blessing that you give to each of us through faith in your son. For we pray it all in his name. And everyone said, amen. amen.